Happy Monday and welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Brianne Fallon and with me is Dave McConaughey. Now, last week we had a wonderful episode with Chris Cotter and Tim Stacey and we really talked about the concept of myth-making in regards to environmentalism, particularly amongst those who identify as non-religious or subtly religious. And after the episode, Dave and I spoke about the concept of contextuality as a sort of add-on to that episode. And that ties just so neatly into this episode, this idea of contextuality. Um, Because this week, Dave, you spoke to um, Anna Gade. I did. I spoke with Anna Gade and Lauren Osborne, our responses editor, joined me for a conversation with Dr. Anna Gade that we're calling Beyond Ecological Essentialism, Critical and Constructive Muslim Environmentalisms. Let's listen. My name is David McConaughey. I'm really thankful that today I'm joined by Dr. Lauren Osborne, Associate Professor of Religion at Whitman College, and our response editors. Lauren, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you very much. Our guest, our mutual guest is Dr. Anna Gade, Vilas Distinguished Achievement Professor of Environmental Studies and Associate Dean for Research and Education in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Author of Muslim Environmentalisms, Religious and Social Foundations, The Quran and Introduction, Perfection Makes Practice, Learning, Emotion, and the Recited Quran in Indonesia, and numerous book chapters and articles. We're thrilled to be able to have a conversation today about her latest book, Muslim Environmentalisms. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gate. Thank you, and I'm thrilled to be here. So in starting to talk about your book, Muslim Environmentalisms, Dr. Gade, uh, I'd like to start with a claim that you make most clearly in the conclusion of the book, actually, but it kind of builds throughout. So in the conclusion, you are articulating this idea of the environment as an ethical idea. And I was wondering if you could explain, uh, what do you mean when you say that the environment is an ethical idea? Yeah, thanks, Dr. Osborne. It kind of sneaks up on the in the book, as you said, and it also kind of snuck up on me a little bit too, I must say, you know, (laughs) I decided to frame the book in terms of writing about environmentalisms, rather than say, you know, Islam and the environment, which I think folks are more accustomed to in the field of religion and ecology. And what writing about environmentalisms meant to me was writing about commitments. So I could study the various diverse commitments that Muslims had in the present and in the past, and those that circulate globally now uh, in various contexts, particularly in Muslim Southeast Asia. But then what happened, and I think this comes out of my grounding now in the field of environmental studies, where I now teach at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and where I work and where I research is, I began to realize that the notion of the environment itself carries so much ethical load, maybe especially for the scientists around me. Now, there are are ideas that are very clearly and very formally sometimes considered environmental ethics. And of course, here in Madison, Wisconsin, that would include the land ethic of our own Aldo Leopold. Yet, even when we look in other fields like the application of environmental justice or just trying to solve environmental problems overall, there's so much of uh, an idea about what are the normative commitments 
that would go into uh, just even prioritizing certain environmental issues, not to mention, you know, the potential for climate disaster or some kind of uh, environmental catastrophe on the horizon, that I recognized that a lot of what was distinguishing environmental studies uh, from, uh, from science overall was the moral load and the ethical commitments around the environment. So that's kind of where that's coming from. In terms of the book, what that means is that I felt freed up when writing about ethics is now so many, you know, in the field of anthropology of Islam do. And of course, as Dr. Osborne, you and I were trained to do at the University of Chicago in the history of religions. I feel like that freed me up from, from concerns about making some kinds of normative claims that we've been trained not to make uh, in religious studies and instead to really embrace the the uh, the two edges of uh, critical and constructive studies. So by saying the environment is an ethical concept, I felt like I could make the critical claims, the constructive claims that come descriptively out of the Muslim material that I was looking at that really I thought made for the most robust kind of analysis in the book. And that's why it shows up that claim the environment is ethical in the conclusion to the book. I think that leads in really nicely to the ways in which the book makes a number of different really powerful disciplinary critiques to areas that I think are normally kind of understood as separate. But I think the critiques made here also highlight the ways in which different um, different disciplines are interrelated when we start looking at them in these ways. So there's this very powerful idea of and act as well, I think, in the book of decolonizing. And I was wondering if you could speak to how the work advances the ongoing decolonization of the various areas to which it speaks, which I would say include religious studies in general, but also Islamic studies more specifically, um, as well as environmental studies or any other areas you would like to address in this way. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Osborne. I mean, again, I didn't, I didn't see it coming, the degree to which I was going to write a book that was so methodological. You know, I really thought that this would be sort of an update to, you know, I hoped it would be an update to the terrific, you know, Islam and environment, uh, Islam and ecology material that was out there, the work that had been done by Richard Foltz and others. Yet what I found was when I began to uh, really dig into the material, which I sort of structured as an intro to Islam class, right? The book, I mean, there's a lot of development critique at the beginning, which I think needs to be there to think about these categories. But, you know, it really follows the structure of, you know, starting with Quran and moving through law and thinking about Sufism and ritual and practice that uh, I, I thought it would be sort of straightforward, and yet it wasn't. And what wasn't straightforward was that the concepts that I had from environmental humanities and environmental studies, not just the environment itself, but notions about you know, nature or crisis or what's an environmental problem, ended up not translating so well into the Islamic framework. And, you know, the problem wasn't really so much that the Muslim material wasn't robust or I couldn't find the environment in it. It was more this kind of mismatch. So I really felt the need at the beginning to take a step back and say, you know, where are the concepts from that are deployed in environmental studies that fit so well, you know, in a white settler kind of context when we talk about, you know, nature or wilderness, you know, in North America, yet 
uh, need to stretch and adapt and frankly undergo some critique uh, in order to work elsewhere. So uh, in the end, the, the decolonization, of course, is part of work that we're doing across, you know, academic study, including in environmental studies, including with the attentiveness to indigenous traditions and critical black studies. And also for someone like both of us, Dr. Osborne, who are Islamicists, this is familiar work uh, for uh, Orientalist critique. And so uh, many of the points that I make that are both critical and constructive in the book uh, are ones that would be familiar to someone who was aware of um, yeah, Islamic studies and how it fits in with larger historical and intellectual frameworks in the academy and more widely. One of the things that I think that we've done a lot of at the Religious Studies Project is to really kind of hone in on that constructed nature of, of these categories and in the challenge of translating categories across cultures we say, right, as religious studies professionals, religion is not a native category. But I think one of the challenges that we see here that you're identifying in your work is that Islam is not a native category, right? Environment is not a native category. And all of these things are intersecting and layering on themselves. Is the Western framework of the environment the, the, the first step in that chain, the critique that's based on a kind of a notion of um, authenticity, like what is the Western notion? What is the Islamic notion? I don't find to be one that really is so helpful in thinking about uh, Muslim environmentalisms. And the reason why is that so many are you know, clearly hybrid. And part of this comes from the developmentalist kind of frameworks that perpetuate, you know, what is now recognized as environmental notions globally. So, you know, I couldn't really do a genealogical critique in the way that we often ha have seen in a, in a post-Foucauldian kind of an approach, critical approach in religious studies. So instead, what I did was this very grounded phenomenological kind of approach to really be as descriptively rich as I could and then to work from uh, that analysis both you know in terms of a shared framework like the Quran which is diverse and then looking at a very specific kind of a context which is Southeast Asia but with the same goal in mind which was to have a descriptive kind of texture that then would allow me to pull out the kind of analytical categories, Dr. McConaughey, that you're asking about, you know, where, where the buck stops, if you will, in terms of what I'm finally going to say is the environment, right, or the Islam uh, in, in the analysis. And uh, I think that that also works as a a powerful critique for the kind of essentializing tendencies that we often see, especially in the world religions kind of orientation that still tends to dominate the field of religion and ecology. I think one thing that you um, show really nicely in the book is sort of the way in which um, 
Islam, when figured in kind of a world religions paradigm, is being made to take on or is being given a particular kind of shape, right? And when you take the kind of approach like you do in this book, in which you are, like you just said, descriptively rich, and then also the geographic focus focusing on Southeast Asia and what is happening and what people are talking about and what people are doing there, um, I think it can really serve to kind of push back against some of those implicit or even explicit and sometimes um, in certain cases, paradigms of Islam. So I was wondering, kind of a central issue is a kind of projection of an essential Islamic core, right? Core being in scare quotes. That's why I'm saying it that way. But your work problematizes this model by framing authenticity differently. And I was wondering if you could talk about that different framing of authenticity. I think that one of the expectations that readers of a work like this might have is that especially in drawing on firsthand field work in the region, like, like the work does, that somehow it would present, you know, the real Islam, the real Muslims, as opposed to, you know, some, something that is imposed. And I really try not to give that impression throughout the book. I think that all kinds of environmentalisms are authentic. But what the book does offer is both in terms of field work and in terms of textual study is a way to look at tradition that allows to see the circulations. That is global geographic circulations when talking about field work in one region of you know, the, the, the world, which doesn't represent all Muslims, but represents a way in which tradition is embedded and then circulates out into a wider system. And then also textually looking at the Quran and tradition of Hadith, the material about the Prophet Muhammad, that while people have diverse orientations around that material, nevertheless, uh, ends up being the shared and common reference. So in a sense, that takes the place of looking at authenticity and allows for a lot of surprises. So the contrast is not so much in terms of you know, good Muslims or bad Muslims or real Islam or not real Islam or you know good environmentalism or not, but rather what I found in the field that could have been overlooked otherwise had I not taken that approach that is is looking at so much diverse material. So for example, I found in Southeast Asia that a whole tradition that draws on teachings of the Prophet Muhammad about mercy and care was really central to the teaching that was being given and really was, was in fact, motivating uh, environmental activism and piety in a way I didn't expect. And that would have been invisible uh, had I not gone to the region and looked at that firsthand. So Dr. Gade, one thing that related to what you were just talking about and that I also was really struck by in the book is the really dynamic and complex relationship between texts and contexts in um, your fieldwork and the literatures that you're talking about. And I was wondering if you could provide perhaps an example or offer some more thoughts on how you saw the Quran figuring in relation to this research. Yeah, I mean, I... It was so important to me, especially as someone who, like you, Dr. Osborne, has done previous work and published previously on Quran. It was so important to me to really bring this forward in, in the study. And 
what I found was that the approach most frequently seen, which is to take certain key verses, like certain, say, environmental verses, often cognate to what people seek when they look at, say, Hebrew Bible about themes like dominion and, and nature, for example, that those key verses have sort of lives of their own in global circulation, and you can find them circulating on the, on the internet quite readily. And that also, when I went into a fieldwork kind of a setting, and I've been working on Quran, with Quran in Southeast Asia as a, doing ethnographic study now for about a quarter of a century, so you know, it's been a while, I found that the material that people were drawing on with and from Quran differed somewhat from these key verses. So for example, teachings about eschatology or the end of the world, which so uh, so famously and kind of stereotypically in Protestant North America are cast as having a particular kind of impact on environmental commitments, fair or not, operated quite differently in this Muslim majority setting. So the idea, which is in about a fifth of the Quran's content, which is that the world is going to end, that the whole environment will be destroyed, transformed into the environment of worlds to come, was in fact something that committed Muslims pointed to as a factor that motivated them to environmental activism because they sought to fulfill the criteria for the mercy of God on Judgment Day and had the conviction that the best way to fulfill that criteria was to care for God's creation. So even though it's all going to be destroyed, uh, you know, still to, to plant trees, even though the end of the world is coming to cite from a, from a well-known hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, and also the activities that I saw firsthand people carrying out in Indonesia. So the way that scripture worked, and even the verses that were commonly heard in teaching and preaching differed in emphasis somewhat from what one hears in the Islam and ecology literature, not to say that it's not all Quran and not important. But what that meant was that the relative emphasis in Quran, say on apocalyptic material or on verses about the earth that appear many, many hundreds of times in the text, had, as you would expect, a proportionate kind of uh, influence and attention placed on them and not so much, say, the few verses in the Qur'an about themes that we're familiar with in English language sources, such as balance and stewardship. When I really started thinking about this, I think, um, you know, as a specialist of the Qur'an, but then I think at the time I was reading this book, I was also teaching my course on the Qur'an. If, like, if I went to it, the text and was thinking, oh, like, where does the natural world tend to figure in the text? It's on the page a lot when you're talking about um, eschatological and apocalyptic material, like you were just saying, right? And then often, you know, sort of being a site of evidence attesting to like the existence of God and kind of the ordering of the, the world or else like, um, being used to illustrate, oh, it's it kind of it being undone is sort of part of a, a natural process that will take place at the end of the world as well. Um, this is, I think, um, a transition that I think makes sense to me, but might be a little bit uh, 
I was wondering if I could ask you about challenges that we all face. So what would you say is next for the intersection of religious studies and the environment? Where where might this area be going next or what are some possibilities in that regard? I think it's wonderful that people in religious studies are beginning to think through the frameworks of environmental humanities to really expand what they see as the environment, just as fields outside of religious studies, you know, and religious studies is not a subfields, but, you know, people who don't think that they work on religion, such as the scientists with whom I work, are beginning to expand what they see as religion as well. So I think environmental humanities is a really helpful nexus for that. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on environmental humanities, both in terms of constructive notions uh, and also some critique, as we've discussed a few moments ago, uh, to begin to allow there to be this kind of rich discussion emerge around key questions, critical questions, like environmental justice. You know, I think that the nature concept has been extremely helpful and remains that way. But I think that there are more robust conversations to have, particularly once we recognize that nature has had its own genealogical development, you know, especially within the white settler traditions of North America. One of the things that that I think your work recommends to us is that religious studies folks should be thinking a lot more about the key concepts that are related to the environment. And you've cited uh, nature and crisis and sustainability and, and especially environmental justice as concepts that we can think with in terms of how multiple religious traditions have their own ways of talking about these things. Can you recommend some of the ways that your own work on on Muslim environmentalisms have raised these environmental concepts for us? The book ended up, as I said before, being critical and constructive around core ideas, not just in religious studies or Islamic studies, but to me, what was a surprise was in environmental studies as well. And I think what I found was that the interventions that were necessary in, say, the received tradition in environmental humanities, which here in North America is, is strongly Protestant-influenced, if not still oriented in, in significant respects, meant that I needed to take seriously the intervention in an idea like environment, say, as an ethical category, or in nature, say, as being an idea that doesn't translate the way one might expect into Muslim majority or Quranic contexts, and really invite others not just to view Muslim materials as being epiphenomenal or a diverse addition to an array of alternatives to core ideas that would then support planetary and universalizing claims, which may remain naturalized according to their genealogical heritages. But instead to say that this material requires us all to do a fundamental rethinking about the environmental challenges that we face as global citizens, and then also academically, these categories that we use. 
So throughout the book, different notions for the environment and about the environment, some of them quite ethical, such as sustainability, emerge, as do some of the most well-known measures that are currently undertaken to promote environmental conservation and preservation, such as the rights of nature. And the book shows that we can all benefit from a deeper, more constructive, and more critical approach to these concepts. And in in particular, I think that's the case with environmental justice. And the reason why is not just the fundamental importance of environmental justice, or EJ, as we often say in environmental studies, to environmental awareness and activism, but also that Muslim traditions, because of the emphasis on law and ethics and law as ethics, speak to environmental justice in ways that move current frameworks beyond Anglophone law and beyond the Marxian commitments of political ecology, not to say that those aren't relevant yet, in order to have political and ethical responses that are commensurate with the scale of the crisis and the challenges that communities are understood to face, it's necessary to move to frameworks that can consider, say, the end of the world, or that can merge legal understandings with ethical understandings in the way that Islamic materials do as a matter of course and have for a thousand years. One of the things that I really got out of your work is when you speak about seen and unseen things, you often are speaking about unseen ecological issues. Let's say how uh, the environment adapts to a particular thing. It can be very difficult to see that. And, And I read your work as saying that Islam has a lot of resources for us in terms of the way in which Muslims in Indonesia were creating practices and innovating the ways that they thought about their practices in order to bridge that divide between the empirical, positivistic, scientific kind of mindset and the tools of Islam, which was always saying, there's another world that we need to care about. There's another set of concerns that are coming from the Quran that are not Um, simply empirical, physical manifestations. For these Muslims that you're talking about, there is no separation there, right? You can't have one without the other. They are simply two sides of the same coin and both of them must be addressed. Thank you for that point. You know, it's it's not just for the Muslims in Indonesia, the point that you're taking away. And, you know, I suppose this wasn't something that I was so intentional about in the book was addressing the... It was not a primary aim in writing the book to address, say, a religion and science kind of split that might be expected for some readers. But I can tell that you really took away, especially from chapter five, the depth in which Islamic science as an empirical tradition has as its extension metaphorical and symbolic valences. They're all connected in a way. And then we in religious studies, Dr. McConaughey, can really understand how the connections of seen and unseen worlds make sense, whether in medieval alchemy or in 21st century practice. So I think that for present day environmental studies, having the tools to apprehend the unknown, 
the uncertain, the indeterminate, the unseen, such as with climate change, is essential. And although it wouldn't be expected that those representing environmental studies or religious studies today would necessarily have an Islamic or a religious framework, what I wanted to do throughout the book was to model the scale and the kinds of thinking that are going to be necessary to grapple with environmental issues in the dimensions that they're truly meaningful. So thanks for that. Well, I'm so thankful for your time today. I really enjoyed your book. This was not my area, but I found the theoretical interventions that you were making in this hugely, hugely valuable uh, for my for my own thinking. Um, and so thank you for, for putting such a, a, a provoking and um, interesting text out there. Um, we really appreciate your work and your time today. Thank you so much, Dr. Gade, for joining us. Thank you very much, Dr. Gade. It's been such a pleasure to talk about this book. Thank you too, Dr. Osborne. Thank you, Dr. McConaughey, and to listeners all over the world, thank you for your time. Now, in that episode with yourself and Lauren and Dr. Gade, I'm really getting a sense of this concept of the danger of the siloing of knowledge, this idea that putting sort of this label of sort of religion and ecology creates bounds that really prevents us from actually looking at environmentalism from a multiplicity of perspectives. What do you think about that, Dave? Yeah, the the thing that I think will really stick with me about what Dr. Gade told Lauren and I was that the challenge of seeing Islam in its variety of contextual circumstances mean that we really need to think about what Muslims on the ground are doing in the places that they are and in really owning up to the fact that Muslims in Indonesia are, are simply not looking at the issues and not dealing with their environmental problems the same way as Muslims are doing in other places in the world. And that if we, and, and, I, and I kind of mean a global we in that sense, if we want to partner with um, people around the world who are concerned about a changing climate and are concerned about making sure that the environment is something we can pass on to future generations with pride, that we need a wealth of authority and expertise that may not be from the traditions and the cultures that we are from. So here in the U.S., we know that um, indigenous partnerships are hugely important in terms of managing land. Um, you've spoken about this before in Australia, which is which is such a, a huge issue given um, uh, the brush and the fires that you, you've had in, in the last year. Uh, is that your experience that there are in is an increasing need for such partnerships that recognize um, embedded indigenous expertise and authority as not simply standing alongside, but being essential for the activities going forward. Certainly. It's something that I've been very happy to actually see on the back of the Australian bushfires. And it has been on a number of different uh, news programs in my state, at least. I'm not familiar with what's going on in other states, but there has been a lot more consideration of the fact that in Australia's Indigenous peoples, First Nations peoples, have been managing the land for 
hundreds of thousands of years. And that process of consultation and working together is actually something that is going to really help protect the environment moving forward. And that recognition of Indigenous knowledge is certainly something that I hope to see not just as a one-off on the back of these bushfires, but an actual approach going forward. Yeah. And we hope to continue these conversations. If this is something that you'd like us to be able to have uh, additional episodes on, please let us know. You can always send us an email to editors at religiousstudiesproject.com, or you can reach out to us on our Twitter at Project RS. If you really love what we're doing and you'd really love to support this kind of work and expand our ability to um, make episodes on this kind of content, we would really appreciate your support on Patreon. Even a dollar or two a month can make a huge difference in different the costs that we experience in order to bring this uh, podcast to you free and hopefully free forever for everyone to enjoy and to think about these really critical issues. But until then, with next week's Discourse Current Events episode that will be timely, we hope, and really um, uh, nail the latest and greatest, which we can't tell you because uh, that's prophecy in the future. <laughs> we are in the past. But until then, all that's left to say is thanks, thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening.